Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Professor Jennifer Najera. Jennifer Najera is Associate Professor in the Department of Ethnic Studies at the University of California at Riverside. Her research interests lie at the intersection of race, immigration, and education, and she's currently finalizing a book manuscript titled Learning to Lead, Undocumented Students Mobilizing Education, which will be published by Duke University Press and uh, comes out in October of this year, 2024. Congratulations, Profesora. Yeah. <laughs> y bienvenida a este episodio. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you, Elena. Jennifer, I like to ask my guests about their growing up experience. So talk to us about where you grew up. Sure. Um, I'm from Bakersfield, California, which is in the Central Valley. It's a little bit of a different part of California than what's usually seen in uh, popular culture. We're not really a beach community or uh, even really a progressive or liberal place. Um, it's primarily like an agricultural um, community. A lot of the industry is from ag and from oil. My family migrated there. My mother's family migrated there from Texas. They were migrant farm workers. And um, so there was a lot of uh, opportunities for them in the Central Valley. And um, they were able to purchase a home um, in a little agricultural community outside of Bakersfield. Um, my dad's family migrated there from um, Mexico, actually. And they were also working in the fields. So um that was that's the community that um, I grew up in. Bakersfield is sort of seen as the bigger city around a lot of smaller agricultural communities. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I had more of a suburban uh, experience growing up. But um, but certainly that culture um, was uh, of agriculture was very big for us um, when I was growing up. It wasn't until a little later, you know, that I realized um, that it was a big center for uh, union organizing. Uh, the United Farm Workers, Cesar Chavez, Los Puerta were organizing in Delano, which um, is just 40 minutes away from Bakersfield up the 99. Um, and then, you know, as I started to get older and become more interested talking to my family members, realizing that um, some of my, uh, my, my grandpa, my tias were striking, you know, with Cesar Chavez and like the Safeways and things like that. So, um, so that's, that's the, the kind of area, you know, where I grew up. So not only uh, are you from an area where all this activism was going on, but also your family was part of, was involved in some of this. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, um, my, my mother, because um, she had graduated from high school in Texas, actually, um, and they might, they, they ended up migrating and settling in California the summer after she graduated. And so she wasn't working in the fields once I got to California, but, you know, her older sisters and my, my grandparents were. Mm -hmm. uh, so my mother remembers and, you know, will, would tell stories about that. But a lot of her stories, you know, to me growing up were about the segregation that she experienced mm -hmm. in South Texas, segregated schools. Right. Um, 
Yeah, some of that discrimination, not being able to speak Spanish, right. um, working in the fields. You know, those are the stories that my mom and her sisters just tell me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when they became involved with the union that was um, sort of almost like at the very end of their time as farm workers, you know, so it was like a coda to this um, longer experience of, you know, farm work, insurance, uh, right. those kinds of things. Right, right. So did you grow up uh, speaking Spanish? with your family nominally mm-hmm. yeah. my my grandparents um all spoke were fully bilingual from mexico you know mm-hmm. um my parents are bilingual english and spanish and um they raised us to be pretty um monolingual i mean you know you would catch a few words here and we would catch a few words here and there but we were pretty much monolingual english speakers me and my uh my two siblings mm-hmm. um I joke that I just knew the bad words because when people get right, right, right. Um, so no, I didn't. I didn't consider myself to be a bilingual kid. Um, I did take Spanish in high school. That helped to kind of put some pieces together for me. Like mm-hmm. realize the stream of words that my mom would say was actually mm-hmm. like four words, and there's the verb, and that's how it's conjugated. Very important for me to learn Spanish eventually because. Um, I always felt a little embarrassed, you know, for not speaking it. And um, people would look at me and assume that I spoke, that I would speak Spanish because right. I look, you know, my mm-hmm. mom, well, you know, the no para la frente, like, of course, <laughs> I speak Spanish. But um, so I would always feel a little embarrassed, you know, that I couldn't. And um, so I, I did very well, you know, in, mm-hmm. in class, but I still struggled to speak. When I got to college, um, I enrolled in a conversational Spanish class that mm-hmm. helped a little bit, but what really, um, I think was, um, instrumental to me to becoming bilingual, which, you know, I consider myself to be bilingual now mm-hmm. was, um, was going to Mexico to Aguascalientes, which is where mm-hmm. my father's family's from, um, and spending a summer with, um, some of his cousins, um, and their family and, um, just being there for two months and forcing yourself. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Right. Right, right. Well, great. I'm glad um, that you um, are, you know, are now um, bilingual, especially because of the work that you do and that we do, right? And uh, working with our community, with Latino communities that often are um, bilingual or even sometimes um, Spanish only, right? Uh, when we go into um, uh, work with community. That's great. Speaking Spanish really just kind of opened up a total, um, a, a world, you know, like it really, I don't know, you know how to say it. It's almost like, um, it's like a door opening. Like all of a sudden you understand things, you know, um, I, I was able to, you know, when I was in college, you know, I was tutoring, um, I was helping, one of my jobs was to teach um, how to read and write and speak English to Spanish speaking service workers on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, my jobs after college were working in immigrant communities. Um, and, you know, even just the, even just in terms of like popular culture, like I could listen to, this is in the nineties, right? So I could listen to Shakira and like fully understand, you know, right. the, the poetics <laughs> and the rage, you know, the feminine rage. And then also <laughs> like watching the novelas and really just, I just felt like a whole world, you know, was mm-hmm. open by learning how to speak Spanish and learning how to understand and communicate. And so I still, I feel like 
I still feel my limits. You know, um, I'm definitely more of a conversational Spanish speaker. I mean, I could talk to you about like what we might talk about over coffee, but I could not explain my research to you in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Well, that's okay (laughs) because um, I'm a native speaker of Spanish, uh, but uh, you know, most of our my writing and the way that I talk about my research is in English. So when I have to do it in Spanish, I also have to like really think and prepare and practice because it's not something that I do all the time. So that happens too. This <laughs> oh, blew my mind right now. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Jennifer, talk to us about your journey through higher education especially your journey as a first-gen grad student and professor. And I I wanted to ask this question because this is something that I've been hearing more and more about, um, first-generation, you know, professor, um, which, um, you know, I identify as that as well, uh, but I didn't really think about, um, you know, what that meant until recently. So I love to hear um, about your experience on this. Yeah, that's a complicated um, question. I feel I feel pretty uncomfortable with the with the word with the title first gen, you know, because I, I'm not a first generation college student. Um, you know, my parents grew up very working class, as I said, like agricultural workers, um, and uh, did not have much, you know, in terms of their growing up experiences, but. My um, my mother did graduate from high school, which in that time like could get you an office job, and my dad um, it was a Vietnam veteran. He went to Vietnam, and when he came back, was able to um, take advantage of the GI Bill, and he went to college in Bakersfield mm-hmm. first at the community college, and then at the um, now it's Cal State Bakersfield, but at the time it was California College Bakersfield, but now it's part of the California State System. And he majored in business and he ended up working um, in the agricultural industry in the office. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was growing up, my father, you know, had been to college and and both of my parents really had that those values for us. Like for me and, you know, my siblings, that there was never a question, you know, that we were going to be, you know, going to college. It was going right. to be elementary school, high school, college. You know, that wasn't there was no other option. That was just common common sense for us. You know, where we were going to college was kind of up in the air. And, you know, because my parents didn't have, you know, like, a, we're going to apply to different colleges and classes, and they didn't know anything about that, but they just knew college, right? And so, you know, when I was in high school, fortunately, I was tracked into um, a lot of the um, honors gate and honors and AP classes. Sorry. There was only one AP class in my um, in my high school and I took it. <laughs> um, it was calculus. And uh, so what I would do, what I did, I think almost all my life was just sort of look around at the other people, and what they were doing. Uh, my school, my high school was 50%, I would say Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say Latinx, but it was really just Mexican-American. But our honors and AP classes, I was maybe one of two or three Chicano students, right, in that in those spaces. And so, and a lot of my, my um, at least enough of my, uh, my peers, you know, had parents who had gone to college and, you know, it seemed like they kind of knew what they were doing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, well, we have to do extracurricular activities. It's not enough just to get a good GPA or, you know, you have to do, you show you're a leader. And so those kinds of things, you know, I would just sort of look around and be like, oh, I need to be a student government. I need to do extracurriculars you know, um, and so I would just copy them and then apply to college. And I, and I got into, you know, a good college. Um, I did my undergraduate at Stanford 
And when I was at Stanford, I did the same thing. You know, I just sort of looked around like, what's everybody doing here? You know, like they're going to graduate school, you know, they're going to law schools, they're, you know, um, they're doing internships. I didn't really do any internships, but, you know, those kinds of research opportunities, I didn't know what research was, you know, but people would just kind of say, oh, we're going to do this research project, you should apply. And so I did, um, not having any kind of um, designs, like I'm going to, you know, get this research experience and get a PhD at all. I'm just sort of fumbling, fumbling around as I think a lot of my um, Chicano peers were. And again, I wasn't a first generation college student, but my, my father's college experience wasn't at all. Traditional. Kind of mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like right. So right. I, I really stumbled into the PhD because I didn't know what to major in. I kept, I knew like I wanted to do something I was really passionate about, you know, and, and what I could see and what always bugged me was that our community, my community in Bakersfield was so Chicano, so Mexican-American and so few of us went to college. And in my family in particular, I knew like I had some really smart cousins, like really smart, smarter than me, who were, you know, barely scraping by, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of graduating from high school. And there I was, you know, going to this extremely like elite university. And I just thought, how is that happening? Like, why is that happening? And so when I was in college, I really wanted to figure it out, you know? And so what I found myself doing, because the way that they, um, you know, this is the privilege of this kind of education. It's like classes that are interesting to you. You don't have to declare a major right away. Just, you know, kind of follow your path. And so I was taking classes on like the political science of race and ethnicity in the United States, the history of race and ethnicity in the United States, you know, the sociology of race and ethnicity in the United States. And, and basically what I was trying to do was cultivate like a, like an ethnic studies degree, you know, mm-hmm. and just trying to figure out like the structural issues that were affecting my community, my family. And then that year, the first year I was at Stanford, they had a massive hunger strike for Chicano studies, mm-hmm. you know, these four women, these four Chicanas and all these other um, student activists who rallied around them camped out in the quad at Stanford and, you know, we're, we're protesting, hunger striking for Chicano studies. Mm. And that happened at UCLA a couple of years before, and it happened at UC Santa Barbara. And that was, you know, modeling after Cesar Chavez. I did not understand what was happening. I didn't know what Chicano studies was. Um, I was like very scared, you know, I was like, oh my God, what are they, what's going to happen to them? You know, are they going to be okay? Right. Um, I had some Chicano studies classes at the time. I had this Chicana expressive culture class with Ivan Yarro Becarano, um, which just blew my mind, like the cultural production of Chicanas. And I remember she would, she was holding class, you know, in the quad with the strikers mm. and they, they won. I mean, you know, they won not everything mm-hmm. they're asking for, but they won a lot of concessions and commitments from the university to create um, an education that was more responsive to the students that they wanted to recruit, right? Like us. Um, mm-hmm. So you were maybe 7% of the student population, right? You know, there I was like in the middle of all this activism and taking all these classes and just having my mind blown, you know, left and right. Um, and I decided to major in anthropology mostly because um, I got to talk to people, you know, it was this qualitative research where you could like talk to regular people and write about them. And, and I just thought, you know, how wonderful to be able to just talk to people like my tias and my mom and to sort of, and to write papers to show that their knowledge was, was important, mm-hmm. right? They teach you something. And so that's what I thought. Anthropology. 
was. Um, and so, you know, I did my honors thesis and of course, like a lot, everybody's sort of assuming like, oh, you're majoring in anthropology. You're going to get your PhD. And I was like, I don't even know. <laughs> 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 um, so, I mean, what does that mean? Does, yeah. You know, and it did seem a little daunting to me because, you know, it's such a commitment, right? Like however many years, you know, you're getting your PhD. And I met, and I had met grad students in the anthro program there and they seemed really cool. <laughs> but um, I just, you know, I didn't really know what I was in for. And so I was, I was thinking about it, but in the meantime, I wasn't ready. In the meantime, I um, decided to apply to this master's program in education there at Stanford. And I did that. I worked for a couple of years and then I decided like, no, 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 I want to, I want to go back. Like I want to do my research because part of one of my jobs was research, but it was for somebody else. And I was like, it's, this is like, great, but I'm not, I'm not getting to do what I'm doing the work, but I'm not getting to do the work I want to do. Right. I figured like, okay. So I went to my mentor and I was like, where can I do anthropology PhD? And he was like, well, for Chicano, like anthropology, there's these programs. Um, Anyways. And I ended up at UT Austin, which um, was great in terms of like the kind of community there was there and um, the professors in anthropology at the time, it was Jose Limon, Trish Flores and Martha Menchaca. And I was working with Martha primarily, but taking classes with, you know, all these people. And they have a very vibrant and active center for Mexican American studies, CIMAS. There weren't very many Chicano graduate students. In fact, um, I was the only one in my cohort mm-hmm. of anthropology, but there were in other departments like English and history. And so I was able to forge that community, you know, but I think this maybe is a very long way, long winded way of getting to your original question about first gen call on professors. Um, I think you start to realize that when you're in graduate school, what it means to get a PhD, it's it's a very elite um, group of people mm-hmm. and it's not always apparent, you know, it's not always apparent that they're an elite group of people, right? Because everybody's kind of casual, you know, like bohemian looking. And um, I remember very vividly always feeling like I don't really belong here. I felt like I was really prepared for a PhD. I had my mm-hmm. research you know, my research experience and my writing and, you know, like I knew I had a good education, but in those seminars, I always felt like, did we all read the same thing? (laughs) Because I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, And I just felt like I was really struggling. You know, Um, I didn't at all think I was going to finish that program, if not for my community of um, other Chicana grad students and for that Center for Mexican American Studies, I, I probably would, I would not have finished it. But I remember this one moment in this class that I took and we were talking, it was a sort of, um, it was a core course in folklore, um, which is one of the requirements for an anthropology PhD at UT Austin. And I remember we were talking about the school of thought that emerged at the University of Chicago or something like that. And, okay, this is what they were focusing on, this is what they were doing. And, um, you know, I'm just sitting there. And one of the students, one of my peers, who's this like very simple looking, like a humble looking woman, like always wearing, like she's very petite, you know, no makeup, like, you know, like tank tops, shorts, like Birkenstocks, you know, um, (laughs) very leftist, liberal, you know, woman. And she raises her hand and she's like, well, she's like, that's interesting because when um, my grandpa was at Harvard in the 1950s or wherever, like they were talking about this and that. And I don't even remember what she said after that, but I remember just that moment of like when my grandpa was at Harvard. Mm -hmm. 
thinking, like, my grandfather swam across a river to get here and never had any formal education at all. And this woman's grandpa went to Harvard. And then all of a sudden, I just had this moment of like, oh, maybe that's why everybody's so comfortable in these spaces. And I feel like I don't belong because I don't belong. And then, you know, later as a, um, as a professor, I have, I have those moments as well, like in the women's faculty association meetings, where you realize that a lot of people who are your, your colleagues now um, are like, well, yeah, you know, um, when I was growing up, my dad had a postdoc in South Africa. And so we spent a year there. Oh, yeah, my dad had a postdoc in Oxford. Or, yeah, well, my dad was a neurobiologist and he had published this. And so that's where we da 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 da. And I was like, wow. This is a very different group of people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, you can call yourself a first generation college professor. I suppose, I don't know if there's a better way of saying it. I mean, I, I, I am, but, you know, I know I had, I've had more privilege just primarily to the fact that my father did graduate from college, mm -hmm. uh, but nothing really prepares you to swim in these waters, you know, unless there are people who have been here before. Um, and so it is, it is an interesting experience, you know, um, when I met, and, so, and then you become aware of your limitations, right? When I'm mentoring graduate students, when I'm mentoring undergrads, you know, I say, I can help you. You know, I can advise you, but I want you to know that, like, I'm still figuring this out, too. Like, I'm still figuring out how to be in academia as well. So you need to also, like, talk to other people, right? Like, I can give you this perspective, but it's limited. And so you also should be talking to, you know, other folks who perhaps have more experience, right? I don't know if I say there, there are challenges, but also I maybe I'm a I'm a person that does the glass half full, right? The, the opportunities, right? There's opportunities because what I see is that um, through my own journey or experience, I can better advise some of those students that are coming Absolutely. to me. Right? Absolutely, you can be um, a bridge, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that's important. No, I know that that is important, you know, for students to see somebody in the classroom who has a similar background to them, who looks like them, even, hello, you're a woman and you're in front of the classroom. That means a lot to people. But, you know, at the same time to to just be very um, frank uh, and, and let them know that it's it's, I think, always a good idea to have more than one mentor in any in any scenario but absolutely yeah. mm -hmm. I remember getting that advice a while ago about getting mentored by um you know other Latinas and like my community I guess uh but also I remember the dean of graduate school said but you also want to find a good you know male mentor <laughs> I wasn't, they, gonna, I wasn't gonna say it right <laughs> so I'm glad that you said it <laughs> Um, well, yeah, because they can help you navigate uh, spaces that um, that you don't know. Right. Uh, so that's um, I remember that advice very, very vividly. And I'm like, yeah, that is true. Like the only people that have had that access could help you maybe navigate those spaces a little bit better or um Yes, a little bit better, I guess. Well, but at the end of the day, like you're going to experience those spaces differently than they would anyways. I mean, they can That's tell true. you, oh, let's do this. And then if you do it, it might come off like a little different because it's you as opposed That's true. to them. But, you know, I mean, yeah, it is, it's a little tricky, but um, we, you know, we're, I think, I think we're doing our best and and the, the most, I, I think the more of us that there are here offering, you know, from our different backgrounds and our different experiences. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're not a monolith either. 
as you know Latinx faculty, um, I think the better it is, you know, for our students. Right, right. And so, in thinking about um, you know working with undocumented and DACA students at our universities, um, I also think about that. Right, I, that has not been my experience, but um, I also feel uh, that there is a way that we can serve our students, right? Um, despite not having that um, same experience, help them navigate um, the system and and just bring awareness about some of the, maybe their, um, you know, challenges or limitations that they might have. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, like how you talked about research opportunities or maybe even internships that some of our students, because of their status, cannot do, right, cannot take advantage of. I mean, immigration, the topic of immigration is always on the news. And as I think of it, right, I I used to teach a a course where we began the course talking about the, the history of immigration. And I used to tell my students, you know, this this um, topic is never going to be like out of Date, right? Like it's n- never going to be outdated because uh, unfortunately we continue to have this battle. Um, a lot of the times what we see in the news or or the, you know, the topic of immigration is current mainly because we have not found ways to to um, better serve our community, right? And in, in just ways, those um, immigrants that are that are uh, here um, in our country. So I assume that you like me also engage with many immigrant students who are DACA and undocumented. And so I wanted to ask you about your experience uh, working with this um, student population. I wanted to ask about your experience, especially there in California. Yeah, it was almost as soon as I got here. In fact, it was as soon as I got here to UC Riverside. I started teaching here in 2006 um, that I began to have students who would come out to me as undocumented. Um, I didn't, you know, as a, before that, I was at UT Austin um, teaching mostly school uh, classes in the Center for Mexican American Studies. I had done quarter at UC Santa Barbara, but I didn't have that, maybe um, those kinds of relationships, close enough relationships with students there since I was there for such a short period of time. But here at Riverside, um, I remember very vividly, I had a student who was working <laughs> She was working like 30 minutes away from campus and she would go to work and come back to campus and go, you know, like she was going back and forth a lot and she was, you know, talking, she would come to me and talk to me and she would say, well, this is the only place that I can find and it pays really good money and, you know, but it's under the table because I don't have papers. And then, and then I remember she got into a car accident and, she, you know, and then she had a driver's license or insurance. It was such a mess. She would work in Ve- at Las, in Las Vegas on weekends because earning extra money. And it just felt like it was, it was such a different experience, right? In terms of, there's a lot of students of color here at UC Riverside, um, UC Riverside was um I think one of the first if one of the first it was the first UC um, campus to be um, an HSI designated campus um so we have a lot of Latinx students here um and our Chicano studies major you know all my students are Chicano right all my students are Latinx you know so I, I knew a lot of Latinx students but I could tell like right away like well this student um has a very very different experience right it, it was working class but it was just um there was this the struggles were, were, were very different. And then I had another student subsequently 
who was a machista, very active in Mechan. And um, she was also undocumented and she was um, in the middle, and like in the time that I knew her, she had founded this organization called Poder, which um, stands for Providing Opportunities, Dreams and Education in Riverside. And it was an organization for undocumented students and, and allies. And it was primarily, I think, really to um, to help with, with scholarships and fundraising, right? Because the issue of, um, a college, you know, the expense of a college of education is always an issue, always an issue, even at a public university that's supposed to be affordable, right? So, um, you know, so right away I could tell that this was um, a unique uh, population of students that I would be working with. And, and I do teach um, courses in education. And so what I started to do was um, I started to incorporate undocumented student educational experiences into my classes. And I would invite um, members of Poder to come and talk about the organization and what they do and why, um, just because I thought it was important for um, our students, I mean, especially our Latinx students, and to know that um, this is this is part of their community, right? Something that we need to to be mindful of and to to help, you know, address any any opportunities that we have politically to help or whatever, like that we need to do this. And so um you know, I was finishing up as I was finishing up my first book manuscript. I was at this scholarship. Um, I must have been. They invited me to give a, a a talk, like to be a faculty ally speaker for the scholarship banquet that they did that Bodet had hosted. And it was, you know, it was wild in those days. We're talking about like two thousand seven, eight, nine. You know, like like around the like around two thousand ten, right before, right after. There were like Minutemen protesting. There were, I mean, people were like uh, like deep under. You know what I mean? They were not out. Um, and so it was, it was a wild time, you know, for them to be, to be out as undocumented, you know, the kind of community, not the camps community, but like the larger community blowback that they were having. And so I remember, you know, there was like police presence and it was just, it was like a very intense time. Um, but I remember I had given this talk like a, as an ally and just talking about my students and, um, and then my experience too, you know, having had my, my grandfather was undocumented. My tias, you know, who first came over were undocumented. My mom was born in Texas, but you know, everybody else in her family before her were from Mexico. And so, um, you know, talking about the important, like, you know, at that time period that they had a policy that they were able to be sponsored and you know, and have their status regularized. And so, you know, talking about the importance of um, of these kinds of policies and how it's changed is not radical, like we've done it before. You know, so we've, you know, we were, I was giving this talk and then, um, and then I got invited after that to some other scholarship <laughs> banquet and they wanted me to, you know, talk about my experience with undocumented students. I remember I was sitting at a table with a couple of people in there who were students, and they were undocumented and they were talking, well, what's your next research going to be about? And I was like, I don't even know. And um, they were saying, you know, oh, okay. And I was like, well, what if I did this as a research project? What do you think that would be strange? And they thought it was a great idea. They're like, oh yeah, you know, you should, you should do a project on us. Like the pumple that and this and that. So I was like, well, you know, so I reached out to some of the people that I knew. It was delicate, you know. Um, I realized then at the time that it was right, um, at that time it was 2012. And it was right after Obama had um, initiated DACA. And so, and there was new leadership in Boder. And I remember I was reaching out to the, the new president and, you know, we had this moment, right, where she came into my office and um, she was sitting in the chair across from me and I was telling her what I was thinking, you know, that doing like an ethnographic 
participant observation type of project. And she just was like, what's in it for us? She goes, these days, you can't go to a DACA clinic without 10 people trying to get you to fill out their survey for their research. Like, I get it. Research is important, but what's in it for us? And I was sort of like, oh, you know, I hadn't really taken into consideration that these students might be experiencing some research fatigue because of DACA had just been um, initiated, right? Um, so the timing was a little tricky. And I was like, well, um, I, I feel like I could be a good ally for you as a as a professor. And she was like, okay, well, why don't you come to our meeting and give us a presentation about what you think you're going to do? <laughs> What's in it for us? <laughs> and uh, we'll vote and decide if we want you to be able to do, do this research. And I was like, okay. So I did that. <laughs> I made a PowerPoint presentation and, you know, I was talking about what I was thinking about, my questions that I had and what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. And um, I presented it to them. It was really funny because they, they asked me questions. Well, are you going to publish? What are you going to do? This and that. And um, I was answering them as best as I could. But after I was done, um, the president was like, okay, let's vote. I was like, wait a minute. I was like, I don't vote. I'm just gonna go. You guys discuss and just let me know what you decide. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, so they decided, you know, that they would give me access. And so they invited me to come to their meetings and their events and mm-hmm. and then the interviews would be sort of like a um individual decision, right? Like mm-hmm. right space that you know we'll each individually decide if we if we want you to interview us. That's kind of that was sort of how it all started. Just as a researcher, you know to sort of understand um the impact you know that you're having on on the community right right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I wanted to ask you about um what um what are you doing with that what should we um know about this book which I'm, I'm excited to read I guess you know wrapping up the other the other book this was in the fall of 2012 and um I started to you know I did I did work with the students for maybe two three years, um, writing, you know, here and there, conference papers, this and that. But um, when Trump was elected, it sort of, it, you know, I was, I was writing, writing, writing. I was like, I got to get this done. But then when Trump was elected, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, okay, um, I need to really think differently about how I'm writing this book. Um, and I ended up rewriting a lot of it. Stylistically, it's very different than when I started. Um, mm-hmm. It's very narrative based. It's a lot of storytelling, um, but the arguments are. I think. I think overall the arguments are the same. And I should say that I started out with this idea of like, you know, what is what is the relationship between um, undocumented student activism education, right? And mm-hmm. my idea was that the students were becoming politicized in college, right? A lot of them, you know, some of them, some of them sooner, but most of them in their community colleges or or at here at UC Riverside were becoming politicized. They were, you mm-hmm. know. Political consciousness about you know being undocumented, undocumented as being a political identity, right? Mm. Here in California, the there's a policy that allows for in-state tuition, and it's called AB 540. And AB 540 is almost almost at, for a time was sort of like the politically correct way of saying undocumented. Like, oh, I'm an AB 540 student, mm. so not to offend you by saying I'm undocumented, but you know, undocumented became um, like more of a political identity to students, so they say I'm undocumented, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, this idea of like how does higher education you know politicize students, not necessarily in the classrooms, but outside of classrooms with other mm-hmm. students 
um, in, in organizations and in conversations, right? So thinking about the way education happens outside the classroom and how that leads to this um, politicization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was what I was interested in. And I was also interested in on the other side of that, which is how are students educating others about immigration, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, things like they're coming out of the shadows events or even these scholarship banquets, um, different kinds of um, workshops and things that they would have in high schools and on campus, immigrant awareness a week, that they would they would go out and, you know, teach others. And I'm talking about like, of course, their peers, but also teachers, administrators, professors, mm-hmm. you know, like how many students have told me stories about going to the financial aid office and saying, this is what I need. These are the forms. Right. This is the policy you know, like teaching them, right? Mm -hmm. The way that they do that through Bodet is much more um, systemic, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in this idea of like the way education occurs outside a classroom, um, the way that education can be activism, right? It can be Mm -hmm. itself be activist. And so that was what I was really interested in. And and there's a lot of that in the book. Um, But what was coming up a lot in the interviews was... um, students talking about their parents Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know one of the first questions in fact the first question um, that I would ask of every student um, that I interviewed was tell me your migration story and Mm -hmm. oftentimes they would not tell me their migration story but they would tell me their parent migration story right and um and so you know really thinking about like their very deep consciousness about their parents risking their lives oftentimes, or at least at the very least sacrificing quite a bit, you know, for them Mm -hmm. to be here and to have this opportunity. Um, And then, you know, other things like navigating poverty at home Mm -hmm. or leaving home and what that meant to the family ecosystem, you know, like there was a really very um, strong awareness, right, of the, the family. And so, and what they, and what they had learned at home before they got to college. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so then the book also had to include, as far as I was concerned, it had to include information about family, especially because families, I mean, I'll say family, but parents are so criminalized, you know, it's like the quote unquote illegal aliens are the parents of the dreamers, right? But people mm-hmm. don't like those connections and the students mm-hmm. don't like the word dreamers, right? Because they're mm-hmm. like, that's like one of the students told me very clearly, that's like throwing my parents under the bus. Like mm-hmm. they're the ones that have the idea to get here, to come here for mm-hmm. me. Right. So the idea of like trying to do some work. And for me, that was part of the book, like trying to do some work to decriminalize those narratives about parents who are workers, right? Mm-hmm. And we're raising families because they're, you know, they're workers, but they're parents and they're parts of families. And they are the ones, you know, who are, you know, educating their kids who become, you know, dreamers. And then of course, mm-hmm. you know, not all the students are dreamers either, like because of systemic poverty, because of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like very few students are actually in higher, uh, very few undocumented students make it to higher education, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, I'm trying, I was really trying to get into that nuance with the undocumented community um, in this book. Right. And I'm interested, um, I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about the Poder organization and, and, and how you see this organization being maybe a model or a key organization uh, point of contact for the students and their education. Um, and I ask this question because in my experience at an institution at Ohio, 
this was very hard for students to navigate. So what you're saying about the students having to um, teach and reteach and like ev with every um, office, right? As they are um, submitting their application for college, as they're submitting their financial aid, as they're submitting, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, every person that they met, they had to say, well, this is, you know, this is what we need to do. This is where, this is the box you need, you need to, you know, check. So it was, it's a lot of effort, a lot of extra work that students had to do. So I wonder how, you know, an organization as Poder um, help, helped mitigate or helps mitigate some of that work uh, with students. A lot of layers to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, and I know that there, I know that there's ten, there's tensions in a lot of these undocumented groups about what they should do. Mm -hmm. um, even when Poder started, um, it was like, is this going to be a, a group like Mecha that does activist work, or is it going to be like a support group for students who are really struggling? You know, like car was impounded, can't afford textbooks, falling behind in work. I mean, there was a lot of emotionally draining, um, you, you know, things that were happening to these students. Right. So they sometimes just needed to be with people who understood, you know, where mm -hmm. they're coming from. They didn't want to talk about organizing a protest. They just wanted to like right. vent and cry. Mm -hmm. um, and so some, some people were like, this is what that space needs to be, you know, but other people were like, we need, we have a, a privilege, you know, we need to do something that's more. And so that was the tension. I think that one of the things that buttresses an organization like Boded though, is um, uh, policies and other um, organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that things began to change in this organization from to be a little bit more um, active when um, a couple of leaders had gone through training through uh, Chirla, which is an immigrant rights organization in LA. And they were um, starting this thing called the California Dream Network with undocumented students and just teaching them some skills like on how to organize. And so what the students were to do is they started to open conversations with the associate vice chancellor of student affairs. And he was um, he was open to talking to them, right, about, OK, like, you know, what do you like, what do you need or what's happening? You know, and so they're saying, listen, like we need um, people who understand financial aid. We need people who are in housing, you know, to understand like whatever. We need the dorms to be open on these days or whatever we need people. And so they had this whole list of like um, or offices on campus that, that dealt with student life. And so they went to him and it was interesting because I sat in on some of these meetings with him and um, I was noticing like the afterwards they would say, he said he was going to pay for this. He said he was going to give matching funds, um, but he didn't hear, you know, so are we going to come back? And they did. And the next time, well, on, you know, January 15th, you said that, da, 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 da. is that still going to be a commitment that you make? And there he is, you know, with his team and they're like, and he goes, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to give you funds for that. Yes, yeah, so I'll match those funds. And so, you know, they, they were very, um, again, I think because of this leadership training through Chirla, they had goals. You know, like these two particular students, they knew like we're going to go into this meeting and we want an advisory committee. We want a commitment on funding for this and we want this. Right. We might not get everything we want, but these are the goals. Right. And this is how. So it was. But they had to go to him because he was the one that was in charge of all these other organizations. And sure enough, you know, there comes the advisory committee and there's representatives from financial aid. And then there comes the idea of ally training and ally training isn't even really like 
how like there's ally training like okay i'm going to be an ally and support you because i understand your situation and then there's like training politically maybe i don't like immigrants but it's my job to know financial aid right it's not ally training it's just training like this is the financial like law of California. So you have to know it. Same thing with counseling and psychological services, right? You know, not all the counselors are allies like to, you know, undocumented students or to even like queer students, right? But they have to know, they have to be educated in the particular needs of these communities, right? And so, you know, I think that Poder has had a lot of like um, growing pains in terms of what is the purpose, like what is the vision? And it depends on the leaders, right? It depends on the leadership that's there. Um, and what kind of, we, we're talking about capital, right? What kind of political capital they come with, even if they've been like um, student council president of their high school or, you know, been in some different organizations and leadership, that all helps um, to come into these spaces and to know like, this is how we talk to administrators, this is what we can ask of them, right? And so um, I think that having that political strategy was really important for them so that they weren't constantly reinventing the wheel, um, but could create something that was a little more long lasting. And then, and then I mean, when um, the president of the whole UC system ended up giving, like she gave quite a lot of money to undocumented students. This was Janet Napolitano, who'd previously been the head of Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. Yeah reputation with the students you know like they protested her appointment like mass protests across the state and so the first speech that she gives in October of you know the new school year she you know says I'm going to give five hundred thousand dollars or however much she gives you know to all the undocumented students across the campuses and it's going to be financial aid and it's going to be this and it's going to be this for services for undocumented students she's trying to prepare her reputation right and so then mm-hmm. you know people are they have a lot of mixed feelings, a lot of big feelings about taking money from this woman or what she's trying to do politically. But for students at UC Riverside, which is not like a moneyed campus like UC Berkeley or UCLA, mm-hmm. that money makes a big difference, right? Right. So you know they're going to the now they're going to the the uh, vice chancellor of student affairs and they're saying, okay, you have this money, you know, how are we going to maximize it to really serve mm-hmm. the students? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I guess it's a, it's complicated. I feel like I learned a lot about politics right? from the students, certainly things that I had never considered before, but mm-hmm. I learned a lot from them. Um, yeah, it certainly makes make me it's making me think a lot about a, a lot of the students that I interact with uh, who are DACA or undocumented. Um, you know, have those some similar challenges or when organizations or groups are um, uh, put together or come together, some of them, um, you know, are waiting for that and some of them are um, reluctant to the intention, you know, of that group, uh, whether it is political or social or uh, resource-based, you know, group. Uh, but it, um, But there is certainly something to say about um, this institutional change, right, that helps um, help students navigate uh, this system a little bit easier. And I agree what you're saying, right? And it, it, it doesn't matter if you become an ally or not, but uh, you do have to have the training, right? You do have to understand how to help this particular population uh, navigate uh, some institutional, you know, um, 
processes. So, so yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that that's great. I mean, that's great work. I like it. And and I know California looks a little bit different than, than every state, every state is a little bit different in in terms of how, uh, what the laws are, or even the, uh, the freedom that students feel to be, to identify as uh, DACA or undocumented. Um, So I, I have, you know, I, I know that there is different um, ways in, in which students navigate that temporary yeah, I mean, identity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just feeling safe on their campus to identify as undocumented. And some people are, I mean, frankly, like some people are more brave than others. And some people really are trying to protect themselves and their families. And their right? families, yeah. And so it's, I remember this very well, even from, um, you know, I was talking about my my undergraduate education and, you know, the striking and things like that. And, you know, there was a big um, great boycott at the Stanford campus in the nineties as well. And I remember talking to the student um, fellow student, one of my peers who was from a a farm community called Reedley um, outside of Fresno. And, you know, she was saying, well, yeah, my, my parents, you know, my parents work in the fields, you know, they pick grapes. And I'm like, well, how, how are you protesting grapes? then? that's their livelihood. Mm -hmm. And she's like, it's the long term. You know, right? It's worth the to me. It's worth the short term risk of them losing their jobs if there's not enough grapes to be picked or people aren't buying the grapes. You know, so that it's forcing you know the bosses to you know to to act in our long term betterment, right? And so, right. but it does it? You know, it's hard. It's hard to navigate those short term losses, especially for undocumented folks, because short term mm-hmm. loss could be a deportation. Right. Well, so the stakes are very high. And, um, and it is safer, I think, in a place like California. Um, but I want to say also, I have a colleague um, at, in San Francisco who was doing work in the Central Valley where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was interviewing community college students, undocumented community college students. And she was asking them about applying for the California Dream Act, which is a mm-hmm. financial um, it's it's like not just in-state tuition, but actual state financial aid for students. And the students were like, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is, you know. Um, and she was kind of, uh, she was really taken aback. Like what? Like you, you know, like you're an undocumented student, you, you could be taking advantage of this financial aid and not having to work, you know, in the fields, like after you get mm-hmm. out of class or working at McDonald's or wherever they were working. Right. And so, um, you know, I think every campus has like a different, even within a state, right. has a certain degree of feeling of safety. Like I'm sure at UT Austin, undocumented students feel different than they do at like, Permian Basin or wherever, right? depending on your campus, your community. Um, so, you know, there's, there are different, I think, movidas, you know, the students are, they, mm-hmm. they have to have to decide and, and decide what they're going to do about it, just how they're going to approach it. Um, Jennifer, what else are you uh, hoping to, to work on this year? And I know you're, you've done some work uh, with oral histories here in South Texas. Um, so I don't know if you want to share about um, what else is going on for you in 2024. Sure. Um, so I have been working, obviously, with the Indonesian student community for a long time. I was I had to take a step back, you know, obviously, during the pandemic and even a little bit beforehand because of some family um, health issues. But um, I have been part of this research team called UC. It was a grant that we called um, UC Promise with some faculty from um, different UC campuses and um, we put out a couple of reports about the state of undocumented students in California colleges and universities. 
So that's on a, the, the UC Promise website. Um, and we talk about things like uh, mental health. We talk about things like um, educational um, achievement, um, political activism, which is um, my area. Um, but what I'm really proud of in terms of that work is um, the incorporation of students from mixed status families. So citizen students um, who have undocumented parents and undocumented siblings um, and how immigration policy affects them as well. Um, and what we found is that um, even um, citizenship doesn't actually um, make a difference in terms of um, some of the psychological impacts of immigration policy or even educational um, opportunities. Um, so we've written a couple of reports and some articles, um, but we are also, uh, we've also co-authored a book that we're shopping around to presses right now called Entre Familia, which is also about, um, you know, it's about undocumented students and students from mixed house families and how they navigate higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one grant. And as we were wrapping that up, um, I was um, able to collaborate with um, a a dear colleague of mine from UT Arlington, Dr. Cristina Salinas, and um, and a colleague that I've respected for many, many years, and I've just been getting to know better over this past couple of years, Dr. Michelle Deyes, um, on an oral history project about women activists um, in the Lower Rio Grande Valley and um, the Tucson, um, Arizona border area as well. And um, we're we're defining activists in a really broad way. Really, I'd like to word, use the word community, the phrase community advocate. Um, we are talking to women who've been involved in environmental justice, um, local school board elections, um, people who have been um, in city and state politics. Um, and what we're really interested in, um, it's a really wide berth of um, of people and the different issues that they're involved in. But I think what we're really interested in is political formation of women and how um, growing up, um, the things that they are raised with, the values they're raised with, um, their experiences and how that path has led to um, to these different kinds of community engagement and political engagement. Um, and we're at the stage now we've done, um, I think, about 17 interviews in Texas. And now we're about halfway through these interviews in Arizona. I think we've done about seven interviews in Arizona. We're finishing those this year. Um, and we're starting to see some of the connections between the, mm-hmm. the mujeres. And that's been very exciting. Um, and the goal of that work is to create a digital archive of women's oral histories. And we've been working with um, the folks from Chicana por mi raza as, um, you know, as a model, but also they're going to, um, they're going to host our, our site and teach us. Oh, great. Digitize archives and we're learning yeah. a lot this process, but um learning a lot about digital humanities, but also um, learning, I think, a lot about um, about being a woman activist and and what that's what that means over time and how people balance their work and their families. Um, I honestly, as I'm as I'm talking about it, and I'm reflecting on it. I just said I learned a lot from the student activists. Um, I've learned a lot from these women too, and I've really mm-hmm. after some of the interviews, I've been I've been like, can I just call you? When I know. <laughs> any questions about how to manage stuff, you know, at my work or at my home? Um, and I think that's really one of the joys. And I mean, going back to when I wanted to major in anthropology, that I 
that one of the, the coolest things about anthropology was that I got to talk to people mm-hmm. learn from them and write about them. And um, I feel very privileged that, you know, I'm still doing that kind of work where mm-hmm. I get to talk to people, I get to learn from them and I get to write about them and, and, and help to amplify the kinds of um, knowledge that they have, right. For others. Right. And build a resource for our classes, our students too, um, you know, everywhere in the nation. Cause that's one of the things that, um, I think it's important about digital communities, oral history, especially digital archives that are um, open and available uh, for us to incorporate into our classes and learn from them and and bring those community members, you know, as primary uh, sources for for our studies and our understandings, which is to me is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.